Well, this morning we're finishing up our study on Galatians. It's the very last one. It's been a ride. I'm glad to have been on this ride with each of you. Uh, This week, of course, we're looking at some of his closing remarks. And as I've looked at this uh, passage through the week, uh, a a hypothetical scene maybe you're familiar with, maybe not, just kept uh, popping into my head of parents dropping their uh, students or their children off at college for the first time and are suddenly seized with an impulse to make sure they hear all the good advice they have to give and, you know, start like rapid fire, pop, 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 like don't forget this and don't forget that. Uh, When we look at this, Paul is rounding out some concluding remarks that he has for them, and he really circles back to some arguments that he's already made, and he can feel a little rapid fire uh, as as we go through this. Um, But there is a method behind what might initially appear like madness as we look at this text, And, and here's what's going on. Paul knows that he is talking to a number of people that are young in their faith. And he's also, he also knows that he's talking to those who, whose understanding of the gospel has been very recently and possibly very significantly been troubled by the teaching of false teachers. And that, there, that he is writing to a people that are asking a lot of questions amidst a lot of uncertainty. And what he does, and what I think we'll see here, is he looks to end this letter with strong notes of certainty. Certainty amidst the uncertainty is, uh, is what we're hitting here. Um, and because what he gives us are particular well-entrenched rules that God has built into his way of creation. Uh, let's look together. This is Galatians 6. I'll read 6 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But even for those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, you are our King, you are our Savior, you are the one who loved us through sacrifice, and the one in whom we are redeemed. And so I pray that as we learn from this text, that you would simply expand our hearts for you, stir us up in affection for you, and help us to look with wonder at just what you have done in the truth of the gospel. Will you give that to me, and will you please give that to my friends during this time that we have together, and help me to love them well uh, with the words that I say, and let every word honor you, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So like many of you, um, uh, like many of you, over this past week, I have been watching the Russian invasion into Ukraine that's been unfolding. And also, like many of you, I've been reading reports from Christians there on the ground, and those are our brothers and sisters that are there and hearing about their experience. And, and of course, there's no two ways about it. What they're, what they're facing is horrible and terribly difficult and looks like a dark twilight. And people are dying, and there's a humanitarian crisis. Many people are displaced. There's a shortage of food and water. Just critical needs are there. And we could go on and on detailing some of that. Uh, But all that is to say, I do think we need to be in the prayer. Just like Miles was earlier, I'd encourage you all to be praying for our brothers and sisters and the many that are facing up to this terrible tragedy. Um, But I'll also say this. As much as we need to be praying for them, I think we also have things to learn from them. I think there are things that we are seeing in our brothers and sisters in another part of the world uh, that are just profound. Because against, I think, what can only be called a backdrop of terror, I think we are seeing some divine fortitude in our brothers and sisters as they paint a picture of what it looks like to labor faithfully amidst so much uncertainty. I came across so many stories I wanted to give you about the ways that we are seeing God at work and our brothers and sisters there using them. I had to just choose one, and so here's one for you. This is the story of a pastor. His name is Vasil Ostriyi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He and his wife, he's a Ukrainian pastor. He and his wife decided with their church family that they were going to stay. They're going to stay in the capital city of Kiev, and uh, I don't, again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so I just need your forgiveness. Um, but they decided that as, uh, as they face uh, hostilities drawing near to them, that they were going to stay, and they were going to seek to serve the city and those who were suffering as a result of what was going on. So what they did was they turned their church into a shelter. Like, they, they, they have affected the structure of their church so that you can go and hide there when bombs are falling. And they've also ter- turned their church into a hospital uh, that, that those who are wounded can come there and find medical aid. And they've also turned their church into something of a, of a supply depot where you can go and find critical needs met with food and with water. What are they doing? They're moving with some kind of deep, sturdy resilience of faith and seeking what they think is God's call on their life to stay and serve in the midst of difficulty.
And as I read accounts like that, I actually thought, I'm getting a picture of the way God embodies himself to the world that's given to us in Psalm 46, where he says, God is our refuge and strength, that he is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Now listen, when we see these things that our family is up to in another part of the world, I think our admiration for those things, our thankfulness, our prayers of support in, the, in those efforts, I think they also are followed quickly in our hearts and our minds by a lot of questions, right? Questions like, how would we respond? What would our church do in facing difficulty like that? Or more personally, what, what, would, what would I personally do? What would, what would that look like for me? Or this one. Just what in the world does it work that is so animating the hearts of these people that informs their willingness to stand fast in the face of such difficulty? Why can they act with so much certainty despite so much real cause for uncertainty? Because times of uncertainty often mean there's there's more questions than answers, right? Deep, penetrating questions like questions of purpose and meaning, and hope, and when uncertainty surrounds these important things, we can feel like the ground is giving way, like the ground is moving underneath us and call us to question what is, rel- what is reliable anymore. And so when we look at this passage, one of the things I want you to see is that Paul is speaking to people that are wrestling with deep feelings of uncertainty. And what he does in each Uh, each section, there are two paragraphs, and what he does in each section is he gives two rules, two immutable laws that God has written into the way of his creation and our life together. And so what I'm going to do is take each one on, one section at a time, talk about each one of these immutable rules that Paul posits before us, and then at the end, I'm going to sum it up with some application at the end. So the first rule has to do with what we invest in, The second rule has to do with what we celebrate. And then finally, I'll I'll close with some so what. So hang on for that, okay? First rule, first immutable law, number one, has to do with what we invest in. You find it in verse 7. And it has to do with what we give ourselves to. He says, do not be deceived. God is not marked, mocked, sorry, God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. Uh, that's a propositional truth that Paul is giving us to wrestle with. And surrounding this passage, Paul is speaking to the things that we invest our lives into. And he acknowledges why this investment might be hard. And he speaks to what we should expect of this investment. So that's why I'm going to work through this. What, uh, what we invest in, why that might be hard, and, uh, and what we should expect. First, Paul lays out a few different things that we should be investing ourselves into. Sowing our lives into is the way that he puts it. The first is simply the proclamation of the word of God. This is every pastor's favorite verse. Share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate the humor there. Appreciate you coming with me on that little journey. Uh, but of course, what we, we see that, that's a, I mean, that looks like what it does. It looks like taking care of the lives of the people who teach you the word of God. It tells us about 
our need, whether we're young in the faith or old in the faith, uh, it tells us about our need for uh, regular teaching of the Word of God in our lives. Um, but what's interesting to me about that passage is the word that he uses there isn't pay. Don't get any ideas, okay? The word that he uses there isn't pay, it's share. That, that word there, that, the Greek word is koinoneo. It's the verb form of the, 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 the word for fellowship. It means to share, to have fellowship with. And so what Paul is saying there is that the teacher and the instructor should, should both be investing in each other's lives. That as a teacher sows the word into your life, so you should sow good things into the teacher's life. That he's, he's talking about a mutual fellowship as we sojourn in life together. And so we sow into the proclamation of the word of God in our lives, and not just in our lives, but, but in the lives of, uh, of those who also might hear the word of God. That's what that looks like. So that's the first thing, sowing, investing in the proclamation of the word of God. Next, he calls us to, to, to invest in our character, okay, our character. It's in verse 8 when he contrasts, contrasts, contrasts. Oh, it's going to be a long morning, y'all, Okay. Verse 8, he contrasts sowing to the flesh versus sowing to the spirit. Okay, he has treated this already at some length in chapter 5. You can look at that there. Remember when he was talking about the fruit of our fleshly desires versus the fruit of the spirit in our life? The fruit of the fleshly desires are those desires that we are born with, innate to our nature. Those are disordered desires, and if the, the duty that we were given in chapter 5 was to walk by the Spirit, the duty that we're given here in chapter 6 is that we sow to the Spirit. So what that is, is a call to invest ourselves in the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. That the Holy Spirit is at work shaping you, and so what we do is we sow to the Spirit's work. We actually cooperate and invest with what the Spirit is doing in our own hearts. Oh, well now, okay, what does that look like? Well, in Colossians, uh, Paul talks about setting our minds on the things of God. He says, uh, things that are above, not things that are on earth. And this, is, this really has to do with the things that we give ourselves to in our lives and in our hearts. Ways that we invest and even seek to protect our own hearts. The things that we consume like media, or the books that we read, or the podcasts that we hear, or the conversations with friends that we have, there are ways that we can sow into our own character, habits of spiritual discipline. You know, simply prayer and reading and private worship, consistency and public worship with God's people, those are all ways of sowing to your character, is what he is saying. And that's sowing to the Spirit and cultivate the fruit of Spirit in our lives, okay? So, He says, what we invest in, we invest in the proclamation of the word of God, and we invest in our own character. And then finally, he calls us to redemptive activity, okay? So that's in verse 9, where he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. That we do good things, like we look to do good things on behalf of other people. And this sounds just like what it, this is what it sounds like, that we help others, we give our time and our money to causes and things, we love our neighbors. Um, but I'm calling this redemptive activity because, because simply every time, every time we work to serve, 
love our neighbor, do good things, not grow weary of good doing is the way that he puts it. What we are doing is we are enjoining ourselves to the mission of God to push back on the effects of fall in the world. It is nothing less than that. So even in small ways, physical good doing for people is a physical manifestation that has cosmic implications. It is redemptive activity. And that's what Paul is calling us to sow ourselves to or invest ourselves in. And yet, even while he's pushing us toward investing our life in these ways, I think we also see implicit acknowledgments about how hard this can be. Like, it's, it's sprinkled into this, that he acknowledges that that, that that work itself that he's calling us to can be difficult. Because when he tells us to resist sowing to the flesh, he is actually calling us to resist the nature that we're born with, and that's hard. That can be really hard. To seek to resist temptation, like Miles prayed just earlier. And when he tells us to not grow weary of doing good, that's just an implicit acknowledgement that, that good doing can be wearying, that that's exhausting. But I think there's another reason that, that, that Paul is acknowledging this is hard, and it's just all bound up in the metaphor that he uses. Notice that he talked about sowing now and reaping later. That's an agricultural term. You sow and then you reap later. And so what he's talking about is that in due season, is the word that he used, that we reap a harvest. Paul is describing for us a long-term investment whose timing we we are not in charge of. And that's hard for us. And I think that's why we also see here in Paul's section that he mentions twice in this passage the expectations we should have of where those investments will lead us. That, there's, that there's, um, ju- this is just chocked full of promises about what sowing to the Spirit, where that will take us. Look at verse 8 again. The one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. Now, that that just makes sense, right? If we sow corn into a field, we should expect to see corn. And so if we sow our lives into corruptible things, we should expect that corruption will manifest, right? Ralph Waldo Emerson says this. This is his quote. Sow a thought, you reap an action. Sow an act and reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. And sow a character and you reap a destiny. John Stock calls that line good biblical teaching. But if that's true, the opposite is also true. Sow to the Spirit. The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And he reinforces it in verse 9. In due season, we will reap. It's a promise. I like to, I like to think the accent of that sentence is on the word Will. Because he is emphasizing the promise that even though we are sowing toward a future day, with the way that we live our lives and the faith that we have, that day is coming, is what he says. In due season, we will reap. And if you're at all familiar with or grew up within an agrarian culture, I didn't. I had a grandfather who grew up on a tobacco farm in North Carolina, so I know a little bit about this. I also like to read Wendell Berry. But... But uh, if you're at all familiar with that, you'll know that reaping is a time of great celebration for the town, right? 
That's when, that's when the town gets together. You have your fairs and your carnivals and you celebrate what you grew and you eat a little too much and you just really enjoy the bounty of the harvest. And that was true for God's people too. If you look in Deuteronomy 16, just put this in your pocket for later, but God created his people to be intimately familiar with the way of parties, okay? And one of them was called the Feast of Weeks. You can read the details about that in in, uh, Deuteronomy 16. And the Feast of Weeks was the Feast of the Harvest that he, he dictated to his people. From the very beginning, he called them. He said, gather together and celebrate what I have given you with the first fruits of it during the time of harvest. So when Paul calls us to look to sow with an eye toward reaping, he is calling us to understand day to day the reality of our labors, even when they're hard. We do it all within the context of a firm expectation of the joy that is to come during the day of the harvest. That's what he's giving us. Because we will reap. He sounds certain, doesn't he? I mean, it's a certainty in this passage that catches our attention. And of course, it's easy to ask ourselves the question, why do you think Paul can be so certain? Well, because Paul is talking about what he would call an immutable law or a propositional propositional truth that God has written into the way of the world. That what we sow, we will reap. And so this is a law about what we invest, a rule about what we invest in. And then next, he gives us another one. He gives us a rule about what we celebrate. You'll find it in verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then later, I'm calling that a rule because he literally says right after that, for all who walk by this rule. So it's That's fair, okay? But what he's doing is he's talking about what matters, what counts and doesn't count. There's also a lot of conversation in this section about boasting, what we boast in and what we don't boast in. It can be easy to read that and wonder, how does all that tie together? Here's what I think is going on. And it's simply this. We boast in the things that we celebrate. We, We boast in the things that we trust, don't we? And in this section of the text, we boast in the things that have a weight of significance in our life. And here, he is saying that some things count. Some things have that weight of significance for the follower of Christ, and some things don't. And these false teachers are trying to say that circumcision still matters. That keeping parts of the ceremonial law still matters. And he's saying, no, no, no. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter. And listen, Paul has already attended to the argument of circumcision just in a variety of different ways. He gives this full treatment. But I don't know that he's already done this. That he, he comes at this argument from a different angle. And it's this one. He, he, he comes to it by questioning the motives of the false teachers in their midst. And, and, and the motives that he questions are first where they find their assurance and where they find their comfort. Okay, so first about assurance, the first thing he talks about is the assurance of the world and the praise of people. Look at verse 12. He says these teachers are motivated by wanting to make a good showing in the flesh. 
And then verse 13, he says, they're not keeping the whole law. They're not even keeping the law that they're calling you to keep. All they want is to be able to boast in you. And many of us know what that feels like, don't we? I mean, many of us have been in ministries and churches where you feel like, okay, I'm I, like, this person doesn't love me. I'm, I, I, they're trying to boast in me. Uh, they are more concerned, these teachers are more concerned about the appearance of good than they are with what is actually good. These Galatians aren't people that the f- false teachers love. These Galatian people are actually trophies to these false teachers. One person put it this way, said they have gotten into religion for the fame and the prestige and the honor and it can bring, that it can bring them in the world. Their ministry is a form of self-salvation. And what that means is that their assurance is found in what the world thinks of them. The appearance of good rather than what is actually good. And you can contrast that attitude I'm so lost on how to pronounce contrast or contrast anymore. After the sermon, one of you can help me because I'm all in my head. But you can, you can contrast that attitude with what we see about Paul's attitude in this passage. He says, far be it from me to boast or celebrate or brag about anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me The world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Paul says a lot in that verse. But one of the things that he is saying is that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, Paul is no longer held captive to the inclinations or the approval of the world. He has been crucified to it, and the world to him. He's been freed from captivity because of the eternal assurance of the Lord's affection on him, shown to him by the wonder of what he did on the cross. And that's what he boasts in. That's what he celebrates, the assurance of the cross. And then we see he talks to the motivation of comfort in this passage. And and we can identify with that too. Like much, I think... (laughs) I think a lot of my own energy in my life is spent just trying to find ways to make it a little more comfortable, right? So, but he speaks to that motivation in this passage because in verse 12, he says, these false teachers are only trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, why, why, why is that? Why would they do that? Because they know as well as anyone that the cross is offensive, but there is, a, there is a, actually a deep offense to, to what the cross presumes to say about us. Because before the cross becomes sweet to us, it also has to challenge us. Before the cross becomes sweet to us, it has to cut us down to size. Because the cross, the cross demonstrates in, 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 a, in graphic detail just what needed to happen to accomplish redemption for you and for me. The cross reminds us the power of sin in our lives and the ugliness that that we have nurtured in our hearts. The cross reminds us, the violence of the cross reminds us of the violence that we have worked out in our own hearts and in those people that we love and those around us. The cross is deeply offensive. And so the cross represents many things to us. But one of the things it does is it challenges us deeply. And so preaching the cross, like Paul did, 
may be faithful to God, and it is, it's faithful to Jesus, but it's not the way of comfort. And and you know who knows that better than anybody? Paul knows that. Look at verse 17. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Marks. When he says marks, what he means are wounds. That he, in in some way, identifies with Christ and his suffering. And the suffering that he has had to endure because of his ministry of bringing the cross to the people. And we have accounts of that in the Bible. We know that he was beaten. We know that he was lashed. We know that he was stoned once. We also know that he was ostracized and isolated and alienated. and uh, his, His character was assassinated at times. And so all this tells us one thing, that the cross of Jesus had become so compelling to him that he was finding such comfort in it that he was willing to suffer so that others would know it's comfort too. False teachers were seeking comfort from the world's approval. Paul was seeking comfort from the approval that he saw in the cross. Now, if this assurance of the world and the pursuit of comfort doesn't count, those things don't count, then what does count? Only this. A new creation. A new creation. He'll write in another letter, he'll say that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's the truest thing about you. I need you to hear this at a deep soul level. That the truest thing about you isn't isn't that stupid thing you did last night. Or the wrong words that you chose. Or, Or it's not reduced to what that one person thinks of you. It's not reduced to how good you are at your work. That that if you are in Christ, you are right now a new creation. That the Holy Spirit is working in you, yes, bringing you to look more like the new creation you are. But in God's eyes, there's no difference. You are right now being renewed into the new creation that you already are, and that is all. That's what the cross of Christ accomplished for you through faith in Jesus. The most wonderful thing that's been given to you that is getting worked into you now that can never be undone. That's what counts. And the minute you add to that, it never counts anymore. That's it. That's what does count. And all those who walk by that rule, Paul says, mercy Let me find it again. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You know what the Israel of God is today? It's the church. It's you. It's you and me. This is our walk as new creation. What matters most to you and me, what's most worthy of our celebration that can never be taken away is what Christ has done in you. So what? What do we do with this? Like, what does all that mean to you? Let me try and apply some of this to you. First, by talking about what we invest in and then talking about what we celebrate. So what we invest in, listen, when we read things like this, talking about sowing to the Spirit, it should trigger like an automatic reaction in us to, to wonder or take stock 
of the inventory of our, uh, of our investments. What do they look like? And so, like, what am I giving my time to? Uh, when you give your, like, you're always investing in something with your life. Every decision you make, in a lot of ways, is an investment in something. What you're giving your time to, what you're interested in, like the things that you're invested in. When you do a project with a neighbor or you do something for them, uh, whether you love them or you hate them, you're making an investment in their lives. Uh, when you give your money to something, to a good cause, of course, that's an investment. When you uh, uh, devote some of your life to caring for your family, you're investing in your family. Those are all investments. So I just want to ask you this question. And I really... I really just want you to spend some time thinking about this. What does your investment portfolio look like? I, I'm, not a, I'm not giving you rules here. I'm just asking you to ask the question. What are the things that you're invested in and do they line up with the priorities that God is calling you to? I'm just, I don't know if you can identify with this. I'm going to give you a silly example of how this pertains to me, okay? Um, every Sunday morning, it, it's just so perfectly timed. It comes in right before I come to, into church worship in the morning. I get a notification on my phone about my screen time, okay? Um, like the, av- the daily average amount of time, I'm not going to tell you what the number is, um, but I get this alert every time I'm about to, uh, to, to come in here about what my week has looked like how much time have I spent looking at my phone? And I got to tell you, it's a shocking number, okay? <laughs> it shocks me every time. It's a little scary uh, just to take stock of the things that I might be investing. Now, look, some of that time is work, okay? Some of that time is email. It's reading articles for preaching. Some of the time is just the maps running on my phone, okay? So it's not maybe not as bad as it looks. But, but one of the things that it's telling me is, is just how much time, when I'm looking at that phone, I'm, I'm really isolating myself. Maybe from my family at home or from other people around me, right? It's just me in a glass cage of narcotized insensibility, right? Okay, that's me. And, and what is that? T- what, it's just one piece of information telling me something about what I'm investing in through the day. And so I would just encourage you to take a look. Look at your calendar. Look at your bank accounts. Talk to people you love or your friends. What would they tell you about what the, 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 the things your life is invested in? What would, they, what would they tell you? If you can bear, look at the screen time notification on your phone. See what it, see what it has to tell you about that. Okay? Those are just pieces of information. I'm just asking you to ask the question. Okay, what we invest in. What about what we celebrate? I don't know if you noticed this, but both of those points ended in celebration. We celebrate the new creation that Jesus has worked in our hearts. And we, right now, celebrate the reaping that is to come. We look forward with an expectant joy of the harvest that is to come. And that's who we are. We are a people who celebrate. God designed his people to be a people who know how to party. Okay, it should be the, the, the most it should be a sin for us to throw a bad party. Okay, because God called His people to be intimately familiar with the practice of feasting and rejoicing, all because of the work that God has done in the world and because of the work that God promises to do in the world. 
that we celebrate the new creation that has been worked into each other's hearts now. We always have a reason to celebrate that. And we celebrate with great joy the new, the new heavens and the new earth that, that he has promised to us at the time of reaping. Do we not? And so he calls us to be a people who celebrate God. And so this is the question I want you to spend some time thinking about. When you look at your life, what do you think an outside observer would say your life celebrates? It's just a question I want to ask. Okay, so if you walked around my house, you would think that guy is a University of Virginia fan, okay? And there's something wrong with him, okay? But, like, our lives are always celebrating something. Just look at your life. I just want to ask you, have you filled it with the opportunity that we have to celebrate the pure goodness of what God has worked into your heart and into your life? That we always have a reason, even when it feels like the earth is giving way, we always have a reason to celebrate the sturdy faithfulness of our God. And you know, I think I got a picture of that a little bit as I was looking at our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Scanning through reports of what's going on, I came across a video of a Christian family, some of you have probably seen it, huddled around the table. And there was food on that table. And it looked like they were all, like all generations were there. It looked like grandparents and teenagers. It looked like parents with little babies huddled, like held close on their laps. And you know what they were doing? They were singing. And they were singing. I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand the words, but I could understand the tune immediately. They were singing, He Will Hold Me Fast. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. And it struck me during a time of turmoil that these brothers and sisters of ours on the other side of the world have a lot to teach us about what it looks like to celebrate the goodness of God the power of the cross, the miracle of new creation. But they were teaching me that though the earth gives way and the mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, we will not fear, but we will celebrate what Jesus has done and we will be a people that celebrate now what Jesus will do. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, be with them. Uh, Whatever they are facing, Right now, please be with them. Let your goodness be known to them in their hearts. Even in the darkest of times, please be with them. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to help them. And help us to remember with great joy that you might animate our hearts with the faith that you have given us. Give us this certainty, even when there's so much cause for uncertainty. Pray these things in the name of our Savior, our older brother, our defender, our rock, the one who calls himself our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.